Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seeley, GIA's program manager. I'm here today with Nadia Lokta, GIA Vice President and Director of Programs, who will join us in conversation with our guests to discuss the opportunity provided by the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, or ARP. It's a new way to resource arts education across states, districts, and schools. So welcome, Nadia. Thanks, Sherilyn. Can you give us a bit of grounding about the American Rescue Plan Act and how the opportunity to direct federal funds to arts education arose? Absolutely, thanks. Um, a few weeks ago, GIA published a blog post titled Getting Equitable Access to Arts Education, Understanding the American Rescue Plan Act, which covers a lot of this content, so go read it. Um, but in that, we discussed the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan Act, which is a $1.9 trillion package in response to the COVID-19 crisis. Obviously, schools reopening safely has been a broad area of debate and concern, so there's much interest in how this federal funding should be allocated. The Department of Education outlined of the more than $122 billion allocated for K-12 schools, at least 90% of funds are required to be used by the state education agencies to make subgrants to local education agencies. These funds are intended to help school districts recover from the COVID-19 pandemic sustain safe operations, and to support students. They can also help districts move toward equitable access to the arts, which we care about a lot, um, and strengthen um, enriching arts education experiences for students following a particularly challenging year plus away from in-classroom learning. GIA's Arts Education Funders Coalition, a group that meets twice per month to research, develop, and promote arts education policy strategy, we met recently to discuss what arts education funders could do with this unprecedented opportunity and access to $41 billion still available. We want to share with the GIA community today some of that conversation with some of our members and discuss what funders can do to support equitable arts education. All right. Thank you, Nadia. That was incredibly helpful grounding. Happy to and, help. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I think we can dive right in. So we are glad to be joined by Jamie Casper, Director of Arts Education Partnership, Alex Knock, Principal at Penn Hill Group, and Eileen Ma, Director at Penn Hill Group. And so we welcome all of you and thank you for joining us today. Happy to. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Awesome. All right. Well, first question, and this one will actually go to you, Eileen, if you can kick us off. What is the American Rescue Plan or ARP? Yeah, so the American Rescue Plan is the latest, you know, COVID-19 relief legislation that passed through uh, Congress and was signed by President Biden. Uh, and within that, there's, uh, you know, a huge amount of funding, I think, as Nadia just alluded to, for the what is called the ESSER Fund, the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund. So that funding pot has about $122 billion. You heard me right, that's billion. Uh, so it's a huge, huge amount of money. And I mean, really unprecedented as all COVID relief funding has been, but you know, particularly want to punctuate and you know, emphasize what a large amount of money uh, this is. And as Nadia said, you know, this, this amount is largely required to be provided in the form of grants to states. 
So this isn't, you know, largely money that's going to be going uh, to administrative things. This is really going down to the state and local level. All right, great. Thank you for that, Eileen. And Alex, can you just add on to that and let us know uh, when the Department of Ed released guidance on state plans and when they're due? So, hey, thanks, Sherilyn, and thanks for having us here. So first, the department just a few weeks ago actually released guidance on this. Uh, what they did uh, actually a couple months ago when the ARP just passed is they gave states immediately two-thirds of this $122 billion. But they said, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. The actual application for the remaining third is coming. And literally just a couple of weeks ago, they released it. Uh, and it really went through all the parameters that states have to look at in terms of applying for that remaining one third of money, which kind of sounds small when you talk about one one third. But when you think about it, it's one third of one hundred twenty two billion dollars. Right. No so it's, it's, it's no big deal at all. That's right. Um, so states have until uh, June 7th to submit their applications. Okay. And then there's also a requirement in what the feds put out to have states also do applications to school districts so they can get their share of dollars. Like Eileen was saying, this money go from states down to the local level. Okay, that's great. June 7th is very close. So everyone listening, you know, keep that in mind. All right, so what's important to consider with the opportunity to engage with states and school districts to leverage funding for arts education? So the, the most important thing about what this opportunity means is to go back to what Eileen said, Sherilyn, which was this is $122 billion. So this is unprecedented yes. amounts of federal dollars going down to states with 90% of it going down to the school district level. So school districts are going to get millions of dollars, some hundreds of millions of dollars if you're talking about some of the bigger ones. So this is a huge unprecedented amount of money that's going to come down that right now isn't encumbered. Yes, Certainly, the idea is that school districts are supposed to use it to help recover from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and learning loss. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but it's not tied to a particular use of funds out there right now. Like it's not channeled to an after school program right. or channeled to teacher training or something like that. Literally, school districts get to say, all right, what do we need to do to come back from COVID-19? And as Nadia kind of laid out in the in the early part of this, the arts are a critical, and arts education are a critical part of what we would hope students were getting before the pandemic, and we certainly want them to get it after. And what can be done to make sure that folks engage on this so they can maximize the use of these resources uh, in this way? I think, I, Jamie, I'd love your thoughts on this too, because in our AEFC meetings, we talk a lot about some of the challenges that different arts um, courses or arts classes are facing, you know, a, a visual arts class is so different than a choral class, for example. But simultaneously, when we talk about this in terms of, what is it, uh, whole, full-rounded education? I forget the terms, Alex. and Well-rounded. Well-rounded, yeah. There's also the idea of well-rounded educa education means we need arts education. It's like, this is a part of full, well-rounded education um, that is a part of the ways that we learn math and that we learn science and all those kinds of things. And I would love to hear from your perspective, um, Jamie, how this comes up in things that you're advocating around. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, you know, shout out to the National Association for Music Education that has published a really comprehensive uh, toolkit around how schools and districts can use these funds specifically to 
support music education, but there are definitely things that apply to all the art forms. Um, Nadia, you were talking about some of the things that are really specific to arts courses. You know, not many think people are thinking about um, how do we safely share art supplies? You know, paintbrushes, paint, pencils, markers, crayons. Um, you know, how do we do that in a classroom setting? How do we <laughs> push you know, leaders and leaders and leaders of air through our vocal cords and through our lungs and put them out into the room safely <laughs> like we do in a music classroom. Um, how do we dance safely with a partner when we need to be within three feet of them? You know, these are all things that our arts teachers and our arts administrators are trying to think about right now. And so, you know, the I mentioned the toolkit that NAFPE put out, they have some very specific guidance about how we could use these funds to do those things safely, like um, you know, making sure that these arts classrooms are fully staffed so that you don't have to have a 160 student band all in one room at, at the same time. But if you've got enough teachers, you can split them and offer those courses at different times. You could use these funds to um, buy individual art kits for students so they don't have to share art materials or so that you have enough art materials to sterilize a set while you use another set with the following class. Um, so these are all things I think that are just really interesting arts challenges that folks necessarily aren't thinking about. That's great. Um, we're actually gonna stay with you for a little bit longer, Jamie. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on, on some of the opportunity that this provides to serve subgroups of students described in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Yeah, um, actually, Alex, can I ask you first to repeat what you said with us um, last week on our call about how this is really an opportunity that folks are seeing who don't necessarily work in the education community to provide, you know, prepackaged services or things, because I have a response to that. Sure. Um, so one of the things that we know is going on is because there's so much in terms of resources that are going down the school districts, obviously, this is going to attract folks that want to provide services to school districts, people with, who have ideas in terms of moving different uh, products forward. So there's going to be lots of interest uh, in talking to school districts about what they should address, whether it be a vendor, whether it be a community based organization, whether, you know, regardless of merit or anything like that, this is a lot of resources and folks are going to come to the table and there's going to be a lot of competition for these resources. Yeah, and then I'm thinking, you know, like a school administrator and thinking, what are the things I'm prioritizing? to spend this money on. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is that in this very specific moment, um, people who are talking to administrators and other decision makers about how they're going to use these funds may want to stress that the arts are a way to fund human to human interaction. Because we haven't had that over the last 16, however many months, you know, if you use these funds, for example, to bring teaching artists into your school to work with students specifically about how to process trauma from this experience, that is meeting a whole bunch of potential school goals, right? We model what it's like to be a professional making a living in the arts. That's a goal. We are helping students process trauma. That's a goal related to social emotional needs. Um, we're getting human beings from our communities into the school to really um, connect with students in genuine ways. I think that's another goal. So that's an opportunity that, that I see. I also wanna back out a little bit 
and talk about something that's been rolling around in my head. So in February of this year, in the journal Equity and Excellence in Education, Gloria Ladson Billings, who some of you may uh, have that name in your head as something familiar, she does a lot of writing about culturally responsive teaching. She wrote an article called, I'm here for the hard reset, post-pandemic pedagogy to preserve our culture. And one of the things that stuck out to me about her article was this phrase, normal is where the problems reside. And her whole point was, you know, we keep talking about going back to normal. And she then lays out all of the reasons why that back to normal doesn't necessarily or hasn't necessarily um, met the needs of our children, particularly our Black children, our poor children. Um, and at the end, she provides this recommendation that if we take this opportunity of hitting this hard reset like we do with our computers when they're acting up and we recenter education around children and the cultural traditions of their communities and families that we will meet the needs of subgroups of students. So we're talking about student populations, particularly BIPOC students, Alana students, uh, students from low-income families, students with disabilities, students for whom English is a second language, and we can go on and on because now those children are the center and it's not, okay, we're, we're building the system and expecting children to fit into it. We're, we're taking the children and saying, how can we fit the system into what they need? That, yeah, that's super essential. And we talk about this a lot um, when with our work um, with Penn Hill Group um, and GIA because that's a really important, obviously, you know, centering our our all of our programs and and all of our advocacy work around racial equity means we necessarily need to take that intersectional approach to um, naming the groups and the students and the communities that are. I mean, we've seen how impacted folks have been uh, very much across uh, racial lines, very much across disability lines. And that's a really important thing that we don't forget just because we're talking about arts education that still affects all of those students too. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that up, Jamie. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, if I think about these particular funds <laughs> and what that means for how we fund um, a, a school that centers children and their communities, I think number one, we fund adults in the community to come in. So not just the teachers, but other you know, community elders, teaching artists, others in the community who are the holders of culture, and we bring them into the school and we pay them to be an integral part of the school community. I think that's absolutely key, number one, and something that is allowable um, under these funds. And I think that's the perfect segue into the next question. Thank you, Jamie. Um, so there's this huge amount of flexible funding, but the question that I'm going to ask is, are there any requirements or reservations on the use of the funds? Yes, there is, Sherilyn. And I'm going to start by saying again, this is a huge amount of money. You know, this is about 7.5 times relative to the amount that Title I gets. It's it's a pretty big deal. Right. And it's actually a lot of, you know, it's 122 billion for the elementary and secondary school emergency relief ESSER fund. And this is a lot even compared to um, the 13.2 billion in the prior CARES Act ESSER fund. It's a pretty, it's a pretty substantial increase. Um, so in terms of reservations and requirements, 
of the 122 billion, um, off the very top, there's a reservation for homeless education, that's 800 billion. And then uh, of the remainder, there's uh, 10%, which is about 12.2 billion set aside for state level activities. And that's across all states. Uh, and then the rest of it, the 90% is for LEA, so local educational agency allocations, and that's about 109.8 billion. And that's across all local educational agencies. And I wanna go in really briefly to, uh, you know, within those state and local buckets, uh, some of the requirements there. So folks have a sense of the 10% for state level, um, and if the percentages start to get a bit much, encourage folks to just listen for, you know, the activities and the focus that seems to relate to your work, uh, because there is a lot here that we see as relating to arts education. So there's, um, of the state level activities, at least 5% of total uh, ESSER funds uh, are directed towards uh, learning loss, and that's at the state level. And then at least 1% uh, of funds are um, intended for summer enrichment. Then uh, another 1% for comprehensive after school and, uh, and then a small remainder for administration. So within that, um, so just to go into what some of that means, you know, with, within the 5% uh, for learning loss, it's very exciting because uh, it specifically talks about the uh, importance of evidence-based interventions such as summer learning, summer enrichment, extended day, comprehensive after-school programs, uh, interventions like that, which are, uh, you know, which respond to students' academic, social, and emotional needs and address the disproportionate impact of COVID, uh, especially on the very important student subgroups that uh, Jamie has, has just mentioned. So uh, in terms of you know, funding, for example, the sort of in-person interactions that uh, Jamie uh, talked about, this is something that definitely fits in there. And then when it comes to, when it comes to the remaining amount on uh, the local level for learning loss, that's 20%, um, which comes out to about 20, 21 billion. So that's actually a very, uh, that's a pretty big amount. And I think Alex can go into a little bit more on the flexibility here and the wide discretion, you know, on the use of funds. Sure, that sounds great. Alex, do you wanna talk a bit about that? Sure, you know, Eileen mentioned all those different uh, reservations and, and different kind of blocks of money or different kind of uses of funds, I guess, or big picture kind of guideposts like after school, like summer school, like learning loss. Um, I think the great thing about this bill for school districts and states figuring out how to respond to COVID, the first rule is you have to fund something that is directed to response or recovery or prevention from virus spreading in your, in, in, your, in your school district or state. So it's really what you're doing to respond to COVID, right? So again, like Jamie bringing up issues about human to human interaction, that's a perfect thing to talk about in terms of response to COVID, right? Because right. we've had some, you know, lack of human to human interaction over really? the past I don't, year or so. I don't know. I don't know. I just thought about <laughs> that. Just, it just occurred to me. Um, so, uh, so I, I think, 
really, you can do almost anything. Technically, under the bill, they talk about you can do anything under the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, anything under the Adult Ed Act, anything under IDEA, these big monster laws that cover major portions of kind of what you can spend federal dollars on. But the big story here is within how you respond to COVID, there's a great deal of flexibility, which it goes back to that issue that Jamie brought up that she asked me to talk a little bit about on, you know, okay, there's going to be competition for these resources. So because of this flexibility, this is a great time to engage as an arts education, you know, uh, local or state leader and say, hey, we need our kind of share of this to make sure that we can recover from the pandemic and address those things, you know, to address all the issues that Jamie was talking about in terms of access to the arts, uh, especially for those subgroups that both uh, Jamie and Eileen mentioned. That's great. Yes, yes, yes. I just, I needed to cheer that. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Yes. Um, Want to talk a little bit about relationships because um, AEP, we published six success stories about how some of our partners and affiliates responded to COVID. And when I went back to analyze those interviews and write a blog post kind of summarizing what we learned across them, the big thing that those folks talked about that I think is really germane to this conversation about funding is that they had to lean on relationships they already had. They were in crisis mode and they didn't have the bandwidth and others didn't have the bandwidth or time to build new relationships to move their work forward. School districts and states are feeling that crunch, that same crunch right now. They're, they've got all people on deck uh, trying to figure out how they're going to spend these funds. They don't have time to go out and build new relationships. So our arts folks really need to be the people to step up and say, I'm here. Hi, this is me. This is the work I do. This is how we can help your children. And these are the strategies that we have in the relationships we already have in the community to help you do that. I think that's just going to be really appreciated. Great. All right. Thank you so much for speaking to that, Jamie. And you know, we're coming to the end of our podcast. June 7th is on all of our minds. So Alex, can you talk about this big opportunity and what the timeline looks like? Sure. So first, again, states have to apply for this remaining one third by June 7th. You know, and look, if a state submits their application on June 8th, nothing falls apart. The world doesn't come to an end. We still have the sun shining and things like that. So to your point, Sherilyn, it's a very short time frame. So we're not entirely sure of every state. Uh, we'll meet that deadline. But the good thing about that is if they're a little behind, that means there's more chance to engage state leaders and local leaders on this sort of stuff. But secondly, once states get these resources, they have through the normal course of kind of how they would spend these resources to the end of September 2023 to spend these dollars. So remember, we're talking about, you know, 122 billion had to be with a, you know, not M, it's B, as Eileen was saying earlier, a lot of money. So they have a good chunk of time to spend this. There's also this uh, other proviso that exists in education law, which automatically tax on another year onto education grant programs. So probably they have a shot uh, at spending this these resources through September 2024. Uh, nice. uh, but what this allows you to do is actually not think about, oh my gosh, I have to spend this money within like before school starts in the next school year. Sure. And there may be a need to spend a lot of money before September or August mm -hmm. rolls around totally understandable, but this can also be longer term funding that goes out over several years that actually makes a real impact to Jamie's point earlier about actually changing practice and changing systems in a way that drives us forward. So the magic answer to your question is 
you know, September uh, 2023 or 2024, depending on how you're looking at it. But the real story here is you have several years to spend these resources over. All right. Do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? Like maybe you want to have a mic drop moment. You all did throughout, but if there's anything else, <laughs> I don't want to leave without us doing that. Well, I would just want to stress one last thing. I've been saying this, but for folks that are listening, it is really so important that you use this opportunity mm -hmm. to engage, you know, whether it's talking to your state level education leaders, your school district, leaders, other community leaders, other folks you work with in your community around the arts. This is an unprecedented opportunity in terms of the amount of resources, especially when you think about how these resources will be used to get things running again in a new, you can't see me here, but quote unquote, normal. That way. new normal, you know, that new so normal we're really going to redefine. The new normal, mm -hmm. thank you. This is such a an important opportunity. And I know everyone has a lot going on in their lives, but if even a, a little bit of engagement happens on this and states and school districts have to think a little more about the arts and how to in, incorporate it, a huge difference, especially for at-risk populations of kids could really happen. here. Thank you, Alex. Jamie. Yeah, I'm glad you went first because you actually set me up perfectly. <laughs> I wanted to share. <laughs> I wanted to share something that one of our partner organizations did that I just think was so brilliant, and I think we should take their lead and learn from them. Engaging Creative Minds in South Carolina made a one-page document for every district in the state, nice. and they they laid out in that one page, hey this is how much money South Carolina is getting. This is how much money your individual district is, is getting. And here are the arts opportunities that you should think about and the people you should contact if you're interested in those. And I just thought that was brilliant because it, yes, it took them some time, but you know that information is publicly available. If you haven't looked yet, um, I shortened the URL so that everybody could access it. If you go to tinyurl.com slash ESSER tables, so E-S-S-E-R tables, you can look up every state and every district's allocation um, out of these funds, and they use that information to personalize this for all of the districts in the state. Just brilliant. That's awesome. Yes, and we will make sure you listeners have this link so you can find it in the description. And Eileen, any final words or thoughts? Yeah, nothing to add, except I really hope that, uh, you know, we have another podcast where we're actually getting to listen to the experiences and success stories of, you know, some great organizations who've hopefully been able to take advantage of this opportunity and really start, you know, building uh, the case and, you know, being able to uh, advance arts education in an equitable way. Uh, so looking forward to that. And I know that's, that's going to happen. So thanks again yeah. for having us. Thanks, Eileen. <laughs> Yes, thank you. And for all of you listening, Eileen specially asked you for success <laughs> stories. So send them our way. We'll have our follow-up podcast. And with that, I want to extend an extra special thank you to Nadia Lokta, Eileen Ma, Alex Nock, and Jamie Casper for joining us today for this really awesome podcast. June 7th is around the corner. So for everyone listening, I hope that you are getting excited to reimagine arts education in your own communities um, after listening to this podcast. We look forward to continuing these conversations. So be sure to tune in to other episodes of the GIA podcast series and be sure to follow us on Facebook at GI Arts, Twitter at GI Arts, and Instagram at Grantmakers in the Arts.
And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Sherilyn Seely, at Sherilyn at GIArts.org. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.